Now we arrive at Jonah chapter 4, the end of this book. I think that this is a little bittersweet because our journey through this book has been absolutely astounding, and I don't want to leave it, uh, but at the same time, it's very sweet because in Jonah chapter 4, we see an astounding picture of God's mercy yet again in this amazing short little book. And so read with me together in Jonah chapter 4. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Nineveh. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Let's pray together. God, you pity Nineveh, and you pity us. We are full of need. We don't know right from wrong. We don't treasure what we ought to treasure. So God, I pray that you would shape our hearts today to to walk in wisdom, to love what you love, to believe what you believe, to value what you value. And I pray that we would show your mercy, that we would experience it today, know your mercy, feel confident in your mercy today, and that we would leave this place eager to show your mercy to a world in desperate need of it. It's for your name we pray. Amen. So we've spent the last several weeks uh, reading the book of Jonah about a reluctant prophet who was called to go to the wicked city of Nineveh, one of the most wicked places on the whole earth, a whole city full of robbers and murderers, and vile, vile sinners and people that Jonah didn't want anything to do with. And so Jonah ran from Nineveh. That's what Nineveh was like in his day. But what's Nineveh like today? 
Nineveh in modern day Iraq, right, right just north of Mosul, you'll find the Nineveh Plains. And one of the many diverse people groups that you'll meet there is the Shabak people, a people with a population of almost 250,000 individuals. And the Kurdish people and the, the Iraqi regime and ISIS have continued to oppress and persecute this minority group. So now they live in, in, in refugee camps that look like this. If you were to visit Nineveh today, this is what you might see. If you were to visit Nineveh today, what might you smell? Well, you would smell sewage and dust that permeate the air throughout these camps. What might you taste if you were to visit Nineveh today? Well, in a refugee camp like this, you have to be careful to taste the drinking water because many of these refugees among the Shabak people have found dead rats in their drinking water rations. What would you hear if you visited Nineveh today? Well, if you visited a refugee camp like that and you spent time among the Shabak people... You might hear a lot of things. You would hear kids laughing and playing. You would hear adults mourning the atrocities that ISIS has committed against them in the last 10 years. Mourning their families that have been left behind and killed for their ethnicity. You'd hear babies crying and babbling and laughing. You'd hear a lot of things. But what you wouldn't hear among the Shabak people on the plains of Nineveh today in modern-day Iraq, what you wouldn't hear, unless you were extremely lucky, is the name of Jesus. Because today, out of 250,000 people among the Shabaks today, less than 0.01% of them are Christians. And that means the vast majority of these 250,000 people will live and die without ever hearing the name of Jesus. Most of them without even meeting a Christian. There are no churches that they can go to. There are no Christians who will share with them. There are not even any Bibles in their language that they could read if you gave it to them. Their first exposure to Christ will be at his judgment throne. And God, who had mercy on Nineveh in Jonah's day, has mercy on the Shabak people today. Just think about the kindness of our God. That just like he looked at Nineveh in Jonah's day, that wicked city that no one in the world wanted anything to do with, and God looked on them with mercy And he sent a prophet to share the message of his word and his coming judgment with them. A warning. And the kindness of God to look on people that regime after regime and government after government has neglected and oppressed and persecuted because of their ethnicity. And God looks at them in this horrendous plight and and has compassion. And he has mercy. He cares about these people. He has compassion on their suffering. Because Christ is himself a sufferer. Christ died for sinners. Christ knows what it is to be acquainted with grief. Christ knows what it is to suffer. And that's just the climax of the kindness of God to show mercy on suffering people. 
But also, as you think about Nineveh, as you think about the Shabbok people, think also about the greatness of God. God is worthy of worship. He was worthy of worship from the people of Nineveh in Jonah's day. And he is worthy of worship from the Shabbok people today. And he's not receiving it. Think about the greatness of God. And what we ought to give him, knowing about these people like the Shabbok people. The kindness of God shown supremely in the sufferings of Christ. And and the glory and the greatness and the power of God shown supremely in the resurrection of Christ. Because friends, Jesus is alive and he is reigning as a king. And he is the rightful king of every every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is the rightful king of Nineveh. He is the rightful king of Iraq. He is the rightful king of the Shabbok people in Jonah's day and our own. And so friends, in light of the kindness of God shown supremely in the crucified Savior... In light of the greatness of God, shown supremely in the resurrected Savior, we ought to give our lives to knowing God's mercy and then making it known all around the world to people like the Shabaks. We've called our study in Jonah, God sends mercy and God sends messengers. God loves everyone on the planet And so he sends his people with the message of his mercy so that everyone from every tribe, tongue, and nation in D.C. and around the world can come to know him and be saved through faith in Christ, the crucified and risen one. So today we come to the end of the book of Jonah, and I want you to see two things. First, we're going to see the conclusion of the story, God's mercy and Jonah's response. And then I want you to see the conclusion that I hope you'll draw from this story. God's mercy and your response, our response. God's mercy and Jonah's response first. Chapter 4 begins pretty abruptly, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. That's a pretty dramatic start, right? I mean, what's he so angry about? Well, you look one verse up and you see what Jonah was angry about. What would you think that Jonah might be angry about? He was angry that he didn't get the hearing he deserved. He was angry that he traveled this way and he only spent a day in the city. Maybe he was angry at the way the people treated him. No, he wasn't angry about any of those things. You just look the verse up. And you see in verse, chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, the Ninevites, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. So what is Jonah so angry about? He's angry that God has shown mercy to Nineveh. Jonah is one of the most effective preachers in the history of the world, and he gets this astounding response, and then he's angry about it. He's angry about it, and he's not just angry, he's angry exceedingly displeased in verse 1. It says it three times over. He was displeased, he was displeased exceedingly, and he was angry. Jonah is not a happy camper. And so what does he do? Verse 2, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Okay, so finally here, We've been reading the whole book of Jonah, not really knowing what this guy is thinking. We know what he's doing. He's running from God. He's running from God's message. He's running from God's mercy. Why? 
What on earth does he think he's going to gain from all that? Well, finally, here at the end of the book, we're, we're let inside of Jonah's motivation a little bit. The curtain's pulled back. Did he run because he was scared of the wicked Ninevites? No. He ran because he was scared of the merciful God. This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He's quoting there. We said this when we read Jonah chapter 1 a few weeks ago, but he's quoting there from Exodus 34. Exodus 34 was a banner passage for the Israelite people. It would have been baked into every one of their minds from the very beginning of their lives. It's a reminder of God's covenant, unending, undying faithfulness to the Israelite people in spite of, in its immediate context, their foolishness, their idolatry, their rebellion. And so quoting from Exodus 34 right here is absolutely laughable. It's like Jonah saying that he is happy with God's mercy to him and to people that look like him, and he's absolutely furious that God's mercy would be shown to anyone else. He hated the idea of those people getting it, getting God's mercy. Friends, do you have a habit of rejoicing at the downfall of other people? Like sometimes we turn on the news and, and we see the dumpster fire of someone else's life and we're like, ha ha, that's, that's pretty funny. That's not a godly attitude. We, we should want the best for people. We should want God's mercy and goodness to follow people, even our enemies, even people on the other end of the political spectrum from you. We don't rejoice at the downfall of our enemies because we worship a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Relenting from disaster. A God who doesn't give sinful people what they deserve. Because he's gracious. So what does Jonah Jonah propose? He doesn't just want to whine about it. He wants to offer a solution. Verse 3. Therefore now, so this is the result, this is his proposed solution. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. We should be reminded, if we're careful readers of this book, of chapter 1. Another time when Jonah offered his life to end his misery... And we see here even more clearly that this is not an act of noble self-sacrifice. This is an act of selfishness. He's saying, if this is what the world is like, I don't want to be in it anymore. It's all about me, Jonah says. So just take it away, God. I don't, I don't want to deal with it anymore. I can't live in this world if this is what you're really like. Verse 4, and God responds, and the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And it just kind of hangs there. We don't get Jonah's answer here. God repeats this question later on in the passage. And repetition, friends, is always a great way to find out what's, what's really at the meat of a passage of Scripture. Look for what's repeated, repeated words, repeated phrases, repeated ideas. But here the Lord just puts it out there. Jonah seemingly ignores the question. Do you do well to be angry? 
In other words, what right do you have to be angry? What right do you have, Jonah, to think this way? The point is that Jonah doesn't do right to be angry. He doesn't have the right to be angry. Because God shows mercy to whosoever he pleases. He's shown mercy to Israel by his grace. He's shown mercy to Jonah by his grace. And now he's shown mercy to Nineveh by his grace. Psalm 115 verse 3 says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. That doesn't mean that God just kind of is always like aggrandizing himself and, and, and you know, doing the path of least resistance, doing whatever is easiest and best and most enjoyable for him. It means that whatever God says, God does. Whatever God determines happens because he is the Lord. And he has the right to do all things for his glory because he is the Lord. The earth is the Lord's. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Have you ever said, you know, you see somebody doing something selfish, like they cut in line at the grocery store or they like cut you off in traffic and, and you say, you know, it's his world. We're just living in it. That's one of my favorite phrases. Uh, well, well, friends, it actually is God's world and we're just living in it. Do you do well to be angry? No, you never do well to be angry. We want God to show mercy to whosoever he will. You don't do well to be angry. It's his world, and we're just living in it. So verse 5, we see this another scene here of Jonah's plight in response to Nineveh. Verse 5, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So he's, he's sitting outside of Nineveh. You remember the message that he proclaimed in Jonah chapter 3? Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. And so Jonah goes out east of the city, sets up his lawn chair, and he says, well, 40 days, 39, 30, I wonder what's going to happen, 37. He's sitting and waiting for the 40 days to run out. And, and he, he wants to be comfortable while he does it. 40 days is going to be a while. So he makes a booth. He makes a booth or a tent or a shelter. And, and, and how is Jonah able to do that? Is he just like the super crafty outdoorsman? He's just like able to like make a tent in the middle of the desert? There wasn't a lot of supplies that he could use from. How was he able to make such an amazing tent? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because the Israelites had a tradition of making tents like this every single year. And it was called the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Shelters, or the Feast of Tents, depending on your Bible translations. Today, Jewish people around the world celebrate the Feast of Sukkot. It's the same feast. God, God ordered the Israelites to do this in Leviticus 23. And why did they live in tents every year? They built these tents, and they lived in them for, for seven days every year. Why did they do that? It was a reminder to them about when they lived in tents permanently, when they were wandering around the desert, after God had delivered them from Egypt, sustained them in the wilderness before leading them into the promised land. And so God says, you guys aren't always going to be in the wilderness in Leviticus 23. He says, you're not always going to be in the wilderness, but when you get to the promised land, I want you to remember this time. 
I want your children and your grandchildren to know about this time when I was merciful to you, merciful to save you out of Egypt, merciful to sustain you in the wilderness, merciful to bring bread from the ground, water from a rock, quail out of nowhere. I want you to remember how merciful I've been to you. And so every year you're going to live in your backyard in a tent for seven days. And so Jonah would have been doing this, building these tents from the day he was born. And now here he is outside of Nineveh, constructing a tent, constructing a monument to God's mercy to Israel, and sitting in it and complaining that God has shown mercy to anyone. You guys see the, the, the foolishness of this. But friends, it gets even crazier, because the Feast of Booths was not just a time for remembering God's mercy to Israel, it was also a time for showing God's mercy to the oppressed. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, God gives more instructions about the Feast of Booths. And he said, you shall keep the Feast of Booths seven days. When you have gathered in the produce from your threshing floor and your wine press, you shall rejoice in your feast, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant and your female servant, the Levite, and who else? The sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your towns. The Feast of Booths wasn't just a time for remembering God's mercy to Israel. It was a time for showing God's mercy to a world at need. And then the prophets ratchet up the vision even more. You guys are learning about the Feast of Booths. None of you woke up this morning and said, I really hope we hear about the Feast of Booths today. But this is the Lord's word, and it's awesome. The prophets give us an even bigger vision of the Feast of Booths, not just God's mercy to Israel, not just God's mercy to the oppressed, but God's mercy to every nation. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So forever, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation will celebrate the Feast of Booths because they have experienced God's mercy. The Shabbat people will be around the throne of the risen Lord Jesus forever, celebrating the Feast of Booths, remembering that God has been merciful to them. And so this is a time for remembering God's mercy to Israel and showing that mercy to others, including the oppressed, including the needy, including the nations. And Jonah builds a booth and he sits in it and complains that God has shown mercy. Instead of using the booth as a monument to God's mercy, he uses it as a shelter for his own selfishness. This is like using an abandoned doctor's office and turning it into a secret murder cave. It's using something that was meant to be for the good and the healing of others generously and co-opting it for selfish purposes. Now, friends, how often we do this in our own lives. God has been so merciful to us, and we, we refuse to show that mercy to others. Sometimes you wake up and you have an awesome time in God's word and you feel so close to God and then your roommate or, or your spouse or, or your child does something that gets on your nerves and you immediately lash out at them. It's like you've completely forgotten God's mercy to you even that morning. Friends, God's mercies are new every morning. You got up from bed this morning. That was God's mercy. 
There's breath in your lungs this morning. That was God's mercy. And yet, James writes, we use the breath that God has given us for his praise to curse other people? That's nasty. Don't do that. Don't do that. So what happens next? The Feast of Booths. It's, it's incredible. God's mercy co-opted for Jonah's selfishness. So what do you think God's going to do? He's like, this sacred symbol that I've given Israel to remember my mercy, and you're distorting it, Jonah. What do you think God's going to do? He's going to show mercy, of course. Verse 6, Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. Just look at the incredible extent of God's kindness. In the, in, in the absolute bottom of Jonah's rebellion, God shows mercy. God gives him a plant. God gives him shade. It's incredible. It reminds me of Jesus sharing the Last Supper with Judas. We read that in our Bible reading plan this week. About Jesus sitting down and giving the symbol of his body and blood to his disciples, including Judas, who would leave from that place to betray him. Astounding kindness. Astounding kindness, friends. And so how do, what does Jonah do? God gives him this plant. What does Jonah do? So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. Notice the incredible extent of God's kindness, and also notice the incredible extent of Jonah's selfishness. There's a repetition here from verse 1. In verse 1, Jonah saw God's mercy to Nineveh, and it displeased him exceedingly. He was angry exceedingly. And now here in verse 6, Jonah sees God's mercy to Jonah, and it makes him glad exceedingly. He's incredibly selfish. Verse 7, but, turning point, contrast, but when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. Friends, our God is merciful but we are not to test him. Our God is merciful, but we don't presume upon his kindness. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. And in doing both of those things, he is righteous. He is righteous. So do not test him. Notice here in these verses... And then again in verse 6, this repetition, God appointed. So in verse 6, God appointed a plant. Verse 7, God appointed a worm. Verse 8, God appointed a scorching east wind. It also ought to remind us of Jonah chapter 1, when God appointed a fish. Swallowed Jonah. So there's this picture of these four God appointings of a God who is supremely in charge of all things, including nature, including a fish, including this plant that sprang up out of nowhere. 
God can make a plant big enough to shade a man just spring up in the middle of the desert because he is in charge of all things. He is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. He is in charge of all things. And yet he shows mercy. This great, glorious God shows mercy. And yet we rebel against him. And so he sends the wind and he sends the worms. But anyways, Jonah received God's mercy It was taken away from him, and now here he is in the desert, his tent blown away, his plant eaten by a worm, the sun beating down on him, the wind hitting his face, throwing sand at him. He's exceedingly faint. He's exceedingly uncomfortable. And what does he do next? And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. And again, this is Jonah asking for the end of his life for purely selfish reasons. He's saying, I'm done with this. Maybe your mom would tell you sometime you were being a little mean to somebody else, another kid, and your mom might have said to you, would it kill you to be nice to them? Well, apparently for Jonah, the answer is yes. Yes, it would kill me to be nice to them, God. Verse 9, but God said to Jonah, Same question, verse 5. God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? Do you have the right to be angry? And Jonah responds. And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. Jonah is accusing God of injustice. Saying, God, I can't, God, I can't believe you. You took my plant away. It's going to get you. Jonah's saying it, it, he does have the right to be angry, that it was wrong for God to take the plant away from him. And then the plant becomes a parable. And the Lord said, verse 10, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow which came into being in a night and perished in a night, the picture of the plant is that it came up immediately. It's completely worthless. Like the God who appointed the fish and the plant and the worm and the wind, he can appoint anything. He could make a bajillion of those plants spring up right now in the middle of this floor if he wanted to, because he's God. This plant has absolutely no value. It has absolutely no value. And verse 11 And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 people who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Just, that's where the book ends with this big dramatic question. Jonah pities a plant. God pities Nineveh. Which one's right? Plants spring up in five seconds. Nineveh is full of 120,000 image bearers. Seems like that would be right to care for 120,000 people. Probably makes sense. Plant, not so valuable anymore. 120,000 people. But they're not just 120,000 people. 
There are 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. They're simple people. They're uneducated people. They don't know their right hand from their left. They don't know right from wrong. They need to be taught. They need to be instructed. They need to be shepherded. These are needy people. And friends, God is merciful. He is not driven away from need. That's what God's mercy is. Sometimes we confuse God's grace and God's mercy, and we act like they're the same thing. But friends, God's mercy is his help for people with desperate need. He shows mercy on the widow and the orphan and the sojourner by welcoming them into the Feast of Booths. He shows mercy on the sick by healing them. He shows mercy on sinners by forgiving them. He's merciful to these weak people. God is not driven away by your need. He's not driven away by your weakness. He's drawn towards you by his grace because he wants to show mercy. And that's what he's doing with Nineveh. He's showing mercy to these 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left. God doesn't see those people and he says, oh my, these people are so foolish. I can't believe I have to deal with them. He sees these people and he says, they need a teacher. They need help. They need a savior. I need to help them. That's what God says, not because he's realizing how much they need him. He's always known. And then it ends on this even more enigmatic note of also much cattle. There's 120,000 people. They don't know their right hand from their left. They need a teacher. They need help. And also much cattle. Here's what I read in a book this week, a commentary on Jonah. God would have every right to spare Nineveh if only because of the dumb animals in it. This was like a really fat Hebrew book. It was like into all the details of Jonah. And then he just starts talking about dumb animals. And I'm like, oh, interesting, okay. They alone, the animals alone, would be worth more by any accounting than was the plant that Jonah had become so attached to. It's just God pointing out again, like, just look at the cattle. There's a lot of net worth in these cattle represented by this livestock. Like, do you want me to just blow all that away? How foolish could you be, Jonah? God's just using the cattle as as an illustration to show that Jonah has absolutely no idea how the world works. He's completely foolish, completely misguided. God has been so merciful to Jonah. God has been so merciful to Nineveh, and Jonah is angry. And Jonah's not angry because he thinks God hasn't given him enough. He's angry that God has given anything to his enemies. And Jonah there shows, pitying the plant, neglecting Nineveh, Jonah proves that he has never understood God's mercy. Because the people who know God's mercy must live to show God's mercy to others. God sends mercy. God sends messengers. God sends mercy. He sends mercy to sinful people. He didn't destroy Nineveh, that wicked, vile city, full of corruption and murder and all sorts of horrendous activity. God showed mercy to them. God showed mercy to Jonah. Saving him from the waters by giving him a fish. Saving him from the heat by giving him a plant, a shade. 
God shows mercy to sinful people. God sends mercy to needy people, to people like Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. God shows mercy to all peoples. To all peoples. Jonah's fundamental problem was racism. He liked God's mercy for people that looked like him, and he hated God's mercy for people that didn't, for people that lived in a different place. God, on the other hand, shows mercy to all peoples, as in groups of people, as in people groups, as in tribes and tongues and nations. God shows mercy to all peoples. It's not a typo. God loves diversity, and he will be worshipped by every tribe, tongue, and nation. He's worthy of it. God sends mercy. Just think about, God has shown this mercy to you, friends. God showed mercy to you when you were sinful, when you were part of that sinful people. He saved you when you were rebelling against him. The story of Christianity is absolutely unthinkable that the king would give himself to save, not the wonderful princess, but that the king would give himself to save the rebels, to save the thieves, to save the scoundrels, to save me and you. It's astounding. God has shown mercy to you when you were a sinful person. God shows mercy to needy people like me and you. Friends, we had nothing good to offer God when he saved us. Nothing good. We still have nothing good to offer. We are unable to fight sin. We are unable to fix ourselves unless God shows grace to us. Unless God shows grace to us. We need God to show mercy to us because we are needy people. And God shows mercy to you in his showing mercy to all peoples. Friends, show of hands, how many of you were born in Palestine? None of us. God has shown mercy to you. The gospel came to you because it crossed cultures. People crossed borders with the gospel to bring it to people that look like me and you and to places that look like this. God sends mercy, friends. God sends messengers. So we ought to share the message of God's mercy with sinful people. Friends, it doesn't matter how unlikely you think evangelism is. We have a responsibility. We have a call to share the hope of Christ with sinful people that need to hear about his mercy, that need to hear about his love. God sends mercy to sinful people. God sends messengers. God sends you to sinful people. God sends mercy to needy people, and so he sends messengers to needy people. That's why we're partnering with the Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center to selflessly serve the neediest among us. To give our lives to help men and women and their families in crisis pregnancies. Because God shows mercy to needy people. We're his messengers. We show mercy to needy people. And God shows mercy to all peoples and God sends messengers to all peoples. Friends, we all have a role to play in reaching people like the Shabak people. We do. We all have a role to play. 
And when we talk about this, some of us are tempted to think that the missionaries are heroes and that everyone else is a second-class Christian. Friends, that's not what I'm trying to communicate. What I am trying to communicate is that we all have a role to play in reaching people like the Shabak people, in sending missionaries. Some of us will go. We'll cross cultures to bring the gospel to people like the Shabak people, sinful, needy people who need to hear the hope of Christ and who will never hear it unless someone crosses a culture to tell them about it. Some go. Some send. But we all have to be active. Missions is not one potential activity for someone in the church. This is the mission of the church. This is what God has called us to. And so when I say that some go and some send, that doesn't mean that you sit back on the bench. If you're a sender, that doesn't mean you sit back on the bench and you say, oh, well, I guess that's not my activity. No, it means that you lay down your life for the spread of the gospel among all nations. You just do it from here in a supporting role as we send people like the Kendall, like Kendall and the Derbyshires and hopefully countless others that will come in the years to come. And so what specific action step do I want you to take on this? Like I told you, you know, we talked about showing mercy to sinful people, doing evangelism. A few weeks ago, we passed out the, the Know Jesus books, a Bible study that you can use uh, with a non-Christian friend. If you haven't gotten those yet, grab two on your way out today. They're on the back wall right by the exit doors. And you can grab two of them, one for you, one for a non-Christian friend that you'll go through it with. We want to show mercy to needy people. And so we set up Love the District and a team to regularly serve the Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center. And even this weekend, an opportunity for all of us to go and serve the Capitol Hill Pregnancy Center. How do we show mercy to all peoples? Especially as we think about some go and some send. And not all of us will cross cultures and none of us are going to cross cultures this week. So what are we going to do about this today? Well, here's the specific action step I want you to take on this, friends. I want you to read your Bible this week. And I want you to just have your eyes opened as you're reading your Bible. Just open your eyes and look for mentions of words like the nations or tribes or the whole earth or even just any message of non-Israelites coming in. And friends, spoiler alert, this week in our Bible reading plan, we're going to read the letter to the Romans. This is the point of the letter to the Romans. Look for it as you read. Why is that the action step? Because you can't be active on God's mission if you don't know God's heart. So open your eyes to it in God's word. He's going to do a better job of convincing you than I can. I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up now. We live in a city and a world full of desperate need. And using our resources and using our time for ourselves is like pitying the plant, which sprang up and was thrown away in a day. Friends, don't be like foolish Jonah. Don't spend your life pitying a plant, complaining about the ways that you've been inconvenienced or trying to protect yourself or build up comfort for yourself. We could never live that way because we worship a Savior who was crucified, 
for our sins. A Savior who held absolutely nothing back in sharing God's mercy with sinful, needy people like us. Because we worship a Savior who is alive, who is risen from the dead. Friends, we have absolutely no need to defend ourselves because our risen Savior has conquered even death. What could they possibly do to harm you? Nothing. Because Christ Jesus died for you, and more than that, is risen. He has swallowed up death forever, friends. We have nothing to fear. So, friends, in light of God's astounding mercy, let's show it to the world. Let's live, because God sends messengers, and God sends mercy. Experience God's mercy, know God's mercy, and then show it to the world around you. If you're here today and you're not a Christian and you don't think you've ever experienced God's mercy like that, you don't know God's mercy, then don't let pride hold you back. Come and talk to me or or one of our prayer counselors in the back of the room and we would love to pray with you. We'd love to, to help you follow after Christ, to help you serve the one who is crucified and risen to save sinful, needy people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. And we thank you, God, that you have shown your mercy to us, sinful and needy and far away from Palestine as we are. God, we pray that you would show mercy to the Shabbok people, that you would send workers into the harvest so that they can hear the good news that your son is risen from the dead and is able and mighty to save sinners. God, I pray that as we read your word this week, you would awaken our hearts and open our eyes and inflame our passions with your heart for the nations. I pray that you would propel us from this place as ambassadors of the risen Christ to share the word of Christ with the non-Christians in Washington, D.C. God, I pray that you would help us to know and enjoy and savor your mercy and that we would leave from this place showing it to a world and a city in desperate need. It's for your name we pray. Amen.